0: Welcome to the All In Remote Podcast, where we believe that companies can unlock their potential, build healthy resilience, and succeed in an increasingly volatile world. We'll explore the new challenges of leadership, best practices for developing culture and trust, and the innovative tools that help make it possible.
1: Here's your host, Kendra Kinnison. For today's episode, we're talking with another of the key architects in Allocations Remote Environment, Dr. Erica Simon. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and, more importantly, an expert in systemic change through her experience partnering with both medical schools and startups. Pretty cool combination. Together, we'll explore some of the inherent challenges of remote work and the antidotes that can be used to navigate them. Welcome, Erica. I've so been looking forward to this conversation. Oh, me too. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So I have to ask, knowing you and knowing the journey we were on, how did you started in remote work or have that as a focus area? Because I think it was long before COVID and, and remote work was kind of cool. Remote work is a
0: really interesting thing because pre-pandemic, The way that we really conceptualized remote work was very specific around, you had like the one person who worked from home, we had sort of this idea of what that looked like. I actually worked at the National Center for PTSD within the VA system, and there was a lot of remote work that we did. It was really great. It was well before the pandemic, and it was just a really interesting thing to see how much you could optimize a lot of ways that we work together through remote work that uh, was just really new to me up until that time i'd really always any of the work i did my training etc it was always within an in person kind of setting so the more i got thinking about it it was really fascinating to think about well All the things that we can do when we're working from home or we're working in a coffee shop. Why do we have these big infrastructures that are put into place that are expensive? There's lots of overhead. Um, There's lots of long commutes. When you really think about the impact that long commutes have on people, it's it's a terrible, terrible impact on our health and well-being. And a lot of people, it's like we don't tend to work where we live if you really think about how kind of absurd that is, a lot of people don't work where they live in that same location. I lived in the Bay Area for a long time and it was just amazing to me how many people would spend hours and hours commuting to a job that was well-suited for them, but was hours away sitting in traffic. And just the absurdity of just this one piece right there is to me just makes such a huge case for remote work. And then on top of that, why do we think that the people we can most effectively collaborate with, why do we expect that they would all be in our same location as well? Or people who relocate and go very, very far away from their family of origin or their place that they love because they get this job that they love. When you really start thinking about all these different facets of in-person work, it really makes you question why we do that in the first place. We're in a modern society. It's very different than, you know, past times in History where you had the milk person who would deliver the milk to the doors. We're just in a different time and place. And it really requires us to just radically rethink why we're doing what we're doing in the first place.
1: Great point. Great point. And it sounds so obvious when you say it out loud now. It certainly wasn't obvious pre pandemic. And sometimes we need the reminder of that. And I have to ask this story too, because I'm not sure I know the full version. How did you get connected to allocations?
0: It really, it's so interesting how sometimes just the universe puts you in the most unique, interesting places at the right time. And Kingsley is such a forward thinker and is really, really committed to the concepts of mindfulness and intentionality. And it's just really amazing. And so I got connected with allocations very early on in the game. And I think specifically just Kingsley and I really work well together around how do you actually just rethink how you do things? And so it just sort of started little by little, but it was was, you know, why don't you, let's do some mindfulness work. Um, how do you really think about how your company values get in you are really lived in your company culture? And it just kind of went from there. It started out with a little bit of mindfulness and then
1: it just took off. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So we've clearly, we're both huge advocates for remote work and the, the potential that it can unlock, but there are some sort of inherent challenges kind of built in. What are some of the key ones that you think companies need to be aware of and intentional about? I really like this question because it's true there are
0: definitely challenges with remote work. So it's not all, you know, sparkly happy joy like I maybe made it sound at the beginning. Remote work really does require a certain level of intentionality that is not necessarily required for in-person work. You have a lot of ways that we interact in a human-to-human way when we have those in-person dynamics of communication. You stop by the water cooler. You maybe say hi to somebody on your way to go grab a drink of water. Um, You can pop in and say, hey, can we just really quickly chat about this issue? It's definitely very different working in a remote environment because you don't have those in-person natural interactions that just automatically come with the territory. I think another piece too is we're really not made to be in this little box. <laughs> we're actually really not. That's not how we're designed, like our, like just biologically wired. And so it really is, I think with the pandemic and with The explosion of Zoom, the whole Zoom fatigue thing, it's a real thing. It really is. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a it's a deal breaker when it comes to remote work, but it is something we have to consider. We're not meant to be spectators of ourselves on camera. I really appreciate that now there are ways you can you turn your camera off. But at the beginning of the pandemic, for example, a lot of people, they were just like really kind of shocked at this feeling like you're in a fishbowl and you're kind of viewing yourself or other people are viewing you, even if you're not seeing yourself. So there are some sort of psychological aspects to being on camera all the time. And then there's also the big issue around feeling a sense of connection and belonging. I'm so appreciative of this exact moment in time of how much we're coming to understand the importance of that need to feel like we belong wherever we work. And that is definitely something that you have to much more purposefully and intentionally cultivate when you're not seeing people in person all the time. How do I actually feel that sense of belonging? And there's also a way where we can, funny enough, we can feel like we're a bit too much like we're being spectated, but we can also feel very isolated. It's very easy to feel like day in and day out, I'm sitting at my desk. I don't really see people and I'm doing my work, does the work I'm doing matter? Is it seen? And then I think another really big one is how much everything, when it's virtual, it makes it important to have so many more basically processes put into place to make sure that information gets documented and gets accessed by everyone in an easy way. It's There's just some of these things that, that really do come with the territory. And then the biggest one is Where do we have that separation between work and home? Mm. This is massive. We have a hard time with this anyway in a modern work culture. Um, In a lot of countries, not in every country, but in a lot of countries, modern work culture is that work, work, work and we take our work home with us. I like to think about the concept of homework with kids. We teach from a very young age in a lot of countries, not every country, some countries are much better than this than others. But in a lot of countries, we teach that work is not done when you go home. And so we already have this kind of built into our psyche. And then when you're working from home, how do you have those natural transitions that we normally have? As much as commutes can be really a big stress and struggle, they naturally get us that transition to home that on, on and ramp and off ramp, yeah, of the day exactly, and we just don't have those anymore. So, again, it's that purposeful intentionality that's really necessary to address these things.
1: Great, great points. Okay, so it's not all sunshine, as you said, and it's not all bleak either. So there are some things, and much of our work together clearly focuses on them. But if you had to pick maybe your top three tools, and we'll talk about more, I think, but if you had to narrow down three things that, let's take three things from a company perspective and three individual, what are three things that a remote worker can do? And what are three things that a company can do to improve the environment? What are some things that would be on your list? Well, I love that
0: you're differentiating
1: these two out because a lot of
0: companies don't. It's super fascinating to me. And we're talking about the, the systemic change. We make systems problems, people problems. And so what a lot of companies do is they'll focus on what employees can do to try and have that good work-life balance or that good separation between work and, and home life. It really is, though, important that the company really thinks about what is the company doing to help facilitate basically the mental health and well-being, and happiness and productivity of their employees. And I think that first and foremost, and this is probably not going to surprise you from our work that we do together, but if I could only have companies and individuals do one thing only, it would be to
1: ruthlessly adhere to a a rest and play ethic. Okay. So let's, what are some ways, if you were to describe our rest and play ethic, as you've observed it, what, what would some of those key components be?
0: So some of the key components from a business perspective, from a company perspective, is that this is something that gets talked about. It's part of the regular conversation amongst the entire organization and that the leaders really not just tell their team members or the employees what to do that you go make sure you're taking vacation time, but actually making sure that it happens and that they show, not tell. I see this happen a lot where leaders will get so focused around sort of that extra additional piece of leadership, like it's this adding on. And really effective leadership is about how do you sort of change how you even see what your job is as a leader. And a big part of that is to really focus on the health and well-being of your team members, making sure that the team is healthy. And so, but this also includes, I shouldn't say, but I should say, and, and this also includes the leader and the leader so often gets lost in this. So I think the first and foremost, it's the show, not tell leaders who take the time off, who tell what they're doing. This weekend I went for a motorcycle ride or this weekend I took an entire day off and we went to the beach. What did you do for your weekend off? Really talking about it. It's really important and we don't do it. We'll say rest and play, but talking about it, having those conversations. And then when somebody is in burnout or they're really seeming to struggle, remembering, ah, this might be a really big piece of it and checking in. And I think that first and foremost would have the most effect. I think there can be something about the company really engaging in activities together there's ways, even when you're in a room, doing remote work, where you can get together and have fun and interesting experiences together, that helps with the belonging piece as well. Another piece is you can't just say rest and play and call it a day. There's this importance around the work piece. If you have 80 hours of work to do per week, you're not going to be able to take that time off and really reboot you're going to feel like rest and play is one more thing on my to-do list. So one thing I like to talk about a lot is how do we ruthlessly deprioritize? We spend a lot of time prioritizing, but we don't spend a lot of time deciding what gets bumped down the list. Or sometimes things just need to get bumped off completely. Off the
1: list. Yeah, Yeah, I remember the quote, and I don't know where it came from, but if everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. Exactly. And that's such a good point. So really what you're... What you're describing, frankly, are just good leadership best practices for any team or any organization. It sounds like just the side effects, the unintended consequences of not having them get more extreme in a remote environment. Because having too many priorities is a pain in real life environment. It sounds like it just kind of gets compounded or or grows actually when you don't have those natural boundaries that at least going to a workplace provides. Exactly. So the natural
0: boundaries that are in place. And I think there's something really profound about the invisibility of work that occurs with remote work. It doesn't necessarily seem like it would make sense, but it happens. We tend to have a lot of work that becomes invisible and it just makes it so much harder. And what's also interesting with remote work is a lot of times people think that it would lead to people being less productive or working less. There's this funny thing that happens, actually. The research shows that people are Actually, work more. And it's really interesting. So, people will tend to overwork in remote
1: environments even more so. Yeah, the research is there. And I think anecdotally, all of us feel it. When you compare some professions, lend themselves to easy comparisons. You know, CPAs, how many tax returns did you do today? Or one I happen to be familiar with. But, you know, there are some positions that have clear measurables and you can see, oh my goodness, I really did do more than I used to do in a previous setting. That's a great point. Okay. So let's put on the other hat and talk to our remote workers or even folks that maybe want to be remote workers or folks that are working remote and find it challenging. What are some things that they can do to improve?
0: The number one thing for individuals is to get good with boundaries, is to really, really focus on how do I actually create strong boundaries? And boundaries can look at, there's different ways that we can consider boundaries. One is having those really strict boundaries between work and home. One of the ways we can do that is to establish transition rituals. So a commute home is a transition ritual. We get in the car or get on our bike, we go home, we walk in the door, we put down our keys. These are little signals that can tell our brain that we're home now. So one of the biggest, one of my favorite tricks that came out of the pandemic was, um, and this was not my brilliant idea, this was somebody else's, was they walk to and from work. They still commute. So get up in the morning, get dressed. I highly recommend putting on real pants and real shoes. (laughs) I know it seems silly, but with remote work, being actually dressed in real clothes It can be kind of fun to work from your sweatpants. I think a lot of people did that at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, It was kind of fun, but putting on real clothes, walking out the door, walking around the block. That was the the brilliant one, right? It's the walking around the block. Come in, open your laptop, and sit down to work. And then at the end of the day, close your laptop, put it away, walk around the block the other way, walk in the door, and it really does create this sense of transition. Light a candle, do 10 minutes of yoga, whatever it is, create it as a ritual though. Because if you think about it, when we're transitioning from an in-work, um, in-person work environment, we kind of do the same things each time. And our brains start connecting that sequence of events with I'm home now. So just doing that all by itself can actually have a dramatic impact. And then I also think it's around the boundaries of when you're off, really being off. And if you decide, for example, to check your email on a weekend, make it purposeful. Say, I'm going to check on my email and my Slack messages just to make sure I'm caught up for 30 minutes on Sunday afternoon or whatever it is. We tend to spend a lot of times kind of thinking we're supposed to be working. Oh, I'll work a little later. I'll work a little later. We feel really terrible the whole time because we're not actually working. But then we're also not actually enjoying our time off because we're feeling guilty the whole time. So I think the second one is really making it a purposeful choice for when, if you do work on the evening or the weekends, it's purposeful and it's a decision that you're making deliberately. And I think those are really two of the biggest ones that if people can do that, it really helps. And then don't keep on drizzling on the workday. So Mm -hmm. the research really shows that we can only focus for a certain amount of time, and that there's a massive law of diminishing returns as we work longer in the day. So the research shows we can really only focus for about four hours. And really, once we hit about the six hour mark, we're really starting to get that law of diminishing returns. So be off. Put your stuff away because when you continue to work and try and eke out more in a day past a certain point when you're not feeling effective, you're getting less out of your time that you're actually doing the work. And- you will probably notice you're doing the smaller things or focusing on the smaller things and having more difficulty with the bigger tasks. And then what is actually happening is you're actually just borrowing attention from tomorrow. Right. Because in the morning, you get up and you're like, oh my goodness, okay, back at work again. And you're less effective. You can't concentrate, you can't focus as much. So you're really just borrowing from and making yourself less productive for tomorrow. So I think those would be my three main top choices for an individual for how you can really be most effective.
1: I love the walk around the block. That is, it's great for so many reasons. I mean, so obvious. Doesn't cost us a thing. Hopefully, get some sunlight in the mix and maybe listen to a podcast on the on the way. I love it. What about folks that are parents or are caregivers and need to kind of chop up the workday? I'm just going to toss out one scenario to you, but but I've I've heard of many. But what about the parents? that their kids have after-school activities or sporting events, they wanna be able to engage with them in that mid-afternoon, evening time. And so they really need to maybe split their workday where they do some say in the morning and then focus on the kiddos afternoon. And then maybe they like working later in the evening. Would you have any strategies or thoughts for folks in that category? There is absolutely zero rationale for an eight-hour workday.
0: So I think first and foremost, it's make it work for you. And in fact, breaking it up into chunks can actually make you more effective in the work you do. So, and again, I I know I keep on saying this, but the biggest point is to make it deliberate and purposeful and intentional. We spend so much of our time sort of haphazardly doing whatever it is that we're doing. And when we're doing that, we kind of stay in this always on mode. Mm. And so we feel guilty that we're taking this time off with our kids and our brains are kind of in that semi on mode with work. And again we're not enjoying that time with our kids we're not actually off the more that we can really create those strong boundaries when we're taking time away from work to really be away from work decide what would your ideal work day look like and again making sure that you're not working late 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 into the evening unless you're a night owl there's interesting research that shows that some people really are night owls and they work most efficiently at night if that's you great. So it really is about designing a workday. I think what's great about allocations is there is a lot of flexibility. Design a workday that really fits where you get your family time, you get your you time, you get to do all the things that you need for work, but it's in the circumscribed amount. And maybe it is chunked into two bits. That's all okay. Working for eight hours and trying to focus that whole time, we actually can't do it. So really design the day that works
1: for you if you have that opportunity. So whether it's a midday workout, or wanting to meet friends for lunch or extra time with kiddos or parents or whatever it might be, that is one of the things, one of the benefits of remote work that sometimes we forget to kind of take it off the shelf and claim it. We kind of feel guilty, if you will, for using those or, or being at a racetrack and getting in a couple, a couple sessions. You know, we kind of feel guilty for taking those midday breaks with, like you say, taking that time, taking an intentional break planning an adequate work session that day or that week or whatever the time horizon is to to stay current with our work that as long as it's intentional as long as it's communicated with our teams and it fits the rhythms of the work that we're doing so you're saying not not only is it okay but perhaps it's even encouraged for people to really customize a schedule that works for them and as you said addresses all of the key aspects of their life not just work as the singular big rock
0: Exactly. It really is. It's it's amazing. There's this tremendous opportunity we have with remote work where we really get to design what our days look like. It's amazing. It's extraordinary. And the best part of this is, is that it actually can make us more productive and better workers. So one of the things that is so profoundly interesting to me in the work that I do is how to help people really understand how to help individuals, how to help leaders, how to help organizations understand that if you can lean into this as a feature, not a flaw, that what you're doing is you're actually making yourself and your organization, your team, etc., more productive. There's this funny thing that happens. When you do these sorts of strategies, it actually makes you more effective when you are sitting down to work than when you try and just push through that eight hour or 10 hour day straight, you're actually doing something that is better. For the company, you're going to be healthier, you're going to be happier, you're going to take less sick days. There's so many benefits to this at an individual level and at a company level, but it's so hard to get people to really believe this truth. <laughs> and so that's a big thing. It's you will be better if you do these things, if you take that lunch hour,
1: you will actually be more productive as an employee. You've just got to kind of have the courage to make it happen. Totally. On the company side, have the courage to test it out. And on the team member side, have the courage and perhaps the intentionality and maybe the mindset of experimentation to try out different schedules, have the courage to have those conversations, try it out and see what works well and adjust from there. Exactly. And
0: especially when you're a global company like Allocations is, there is no eight hours, The eight-hour workday works for a company to have hours for you. But even that, in the Bay Area, before the pandemic, they actually started chunking up the workday. You sort of have like first, first part of the day, but it was because of the commute was so terrible. But yeah, why do we all have to be in at the same time? And if you're global, then all rules are out the window when it comes to that. So yeah, I really appreciate
1: that. So what about company size? Do you think there's a size at which remote breaks or where the way your order has to be fundamentally different. Obviously, you've seen us we out at like 11 to 15 folks for, for quite a while. And then we slowly ramped to about 40 or 50. And then we, we pretty much went, we doubled, I don't want to say overnight, but within about 45 days, went from to above 100. So we've certainly experienced a bit of a, a growth curve there. And I know you've worked with other companies as well. Do you feel remote is infinitely scalable or that there's anything unique about remote that makes that better or worse?
0: I think that with remote work, I actually don't think it's any different from the liabilities that are also with inherent and in-person work. And in fact, I think that there can be some benefits as you scale. So what I've really seen in organizations, so you know, just working with companies of different sizes, at different places in their development as an organization, there's this point where what happens is, is that it's sort of like a, a runaway train when it comes to how the company starts, just sort of like there isn't that intentionality around how the company continues to scale and grow for how that impacts how teams look. You have, there's the more layers you have to an organization, the more likely it is that you have basically people. Not even really intentionally creating processes for their teams. A lot of it just there isn't that oversight, and so it happens. In, and this is the same for in person. At some point, there isn't this oversight over all aspects of the company for all the different processes that are being put into place. There's no difference within person. So I think with remote work, there's actually this amazing opportunity for a company to be all on board for every leader of every team to have these processes put into place where it can infinitely scale. And that these are so baked into company culture and team culture from the entire life cycle of of a team member, your work cycle of a team member, mm-hmm. it really can be a company-wide thing, even more so with remote work. I think there's opportunities to be more purposeful with that than even in, in person. So I think it's infinitely scalable. It just, again, requires that we really bake in to where we're not trying to think about what values that you hold, or mm. we try and think about like, are you resting and playing? It's so baked in that everybody just does it where every person that is in the company feels a sense of responsibility around really living these values and making sure that everybody does take care of each other and we notice
1: what each person is doing. That's really the answer. Great point. I mean, scaling is hard no matter how you choose to do it, but there's there's nothing particular about remote that makes it worse, so to speak. And you touched on this earlier, and let's explore it a bit more. Documentation and I guess, why don't I let you, instead of me rewording the question, why don't I let you unpack kind of what you mean by that and why that aspect of work is so essential to remote work? Documentation is so important because
0: you have to know, Like everybody needs to understand and know what the rules are for engagement. And when decisions are made, how does that get passed along to people? So it doesn't necessarily make total sense why there'd be such a big difference between in-person versus remote. Because when I really think about it, why aren't we all just sort of essentially our work office has just been transitioned to home office? And why is it that my filing cabinet with real pieces of paper here, why is that actually different from my filing cabinet, if you will, that's online? It's really Easy for there to be lost decisions to be made that then just don't get passed along in the same way. And it just happens to be how it is with remote work. Somebody will have a meeting over here, a decision is made. If it's not documented, it's like it didn't happen. And then also, sort of the counter to that is a lot of times there's just no real system put into place for how to document. And so stuff is all over the place. So we don't have that centralized place. People are documenting, every person is documenting in their own way. How do you really create some sort of system to where there's consistency? You know that everything is being documented. You know it's being shared out appropriately. How do you inform everyone of what's happening? How do you onboard people from the very beginning so they understand how this looks? as an organization. So I feel, again, there's this amazing opportunity with remote work to basically replace the antiquated, I've got my filing cabinet with my papers that only I can access. There's something really profound that we could, I think, capitalize on with remote work, but it doesn't really happen. And I just see this happen over and over. Things are either poorly documented or they're just not documented at all.
1: Great points. Again, taking something that if we just put some intentionality And some systems to it can become remote, can almost enhance an advantage when we're we're headed there. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation, for really being the architect of what has become just an amazing place to work, a a team that we enjoy being on. And and I certainly credit you with being such a key designer in that and in, in helping us at every phase, being present with our team Coaching us. I really just want to honor you for all the work that you've done in that space. Thank you. you. I appreciate it and I know our teams do as well. It has been such an amazing honor to be a part of
0: this process. It's truly, truly a joy to see how much you and Kingsley and everyone has really embraced these ideas to really live these values that you hold as a company every step along the way. And I think it is a rarity. I wish it weren't, but it is. It is truly a rarity. So I've been very happy to be a part of this.
1: It's certainly been fun. All right, so we're gonna head into bonus footage. I see a question from Sebs. So, Sebs, if you are ready, let me get you set up and you can ask your question to Erica. All right, Sebs, you're on.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much, Kendra. This is really amazing. And thank you, Erica, for everything that you do for us and like the guidance that you provide. It's really, really amazing. So, my question is, I have always been an extrovert in social gatherings used to energize me a lot. And I noticed that since I started working remotely, when I try to be like my normal social being through a Zoom call, I end up feeling more exhausted than usual at the end of the day. And it's been a pattern. And so my question is, is there a particular reason for this? And are there any recommendations to contrast it?
0: Well, this is a great question. And thank you so much for asking it. And This brings up a really important point, which is that people who are extroverted versus introverted have had very different experiences around this remote work. And it absolutely makes perfect sense to me that you feel more drained after you are having virtual meetings and whatnot. Because again, we're not actually biologically wired to be in this little box and to be, it really is interesting, the research that's coming out around this particular topic for how we feel when we're seen in a virtual setting. It's just different. We're missing that dynamic in-person interactions that we have. There is something about being present with people in a room, seeing eye to eye, experiencing body language. We have to also pay attention in a very different way when we're on Zoom because we don't have these natural aspects of our social interactions that we usually get. It really does change things. We have to use much less input for how we're we're gauging the interaction. So there is definitely a lot of reasons why you can feel more exhausted. And when you're an extrovert, the big difference with extrovert versus introvert is that you gain energy by being around people. And if you're seeing a paddle of a bunch of faces, that's just different than being amongst those same number of people in a room. It's just different. And so you're not gaining that energy in the same way. So I think for those reasons, it really can lead to feeling uh, more exhausted. So I would say that one of the things you can do is, first of all, is just really acknowledging that, making sure that you're aware of that. Because a lot of times what we don't do is we don't normalize the reason why we feel like we do. And it really is step one. Of course, I feel this way. So makes perfect sense. I think two is making sure you do have those social interactions if pandemic is always a consideration right now. But just separate from that, it's how do you make sure you are getting enough of those in-person social interactions to where you can get some of that energy back? And I think that is really important piece of this is just making sure that you counter. Another piece too is maybe you aren't always on the video when you do your calls. Just being on the video is all by itself can be very draining. So I highly recommend individuals and organizations to think about how do you actually have cameras off meetings, for example, where nobody's cameras on, where there isn't even that expectation, where you can't even join that way. Go on a walk and talk. Get on your phone, get outside, try and find other ways to create that energy for yourself can also help. And what's interesting is that a phone call feels fundamentally different than a Zoom call. You probably feel much different after you've had a phone call versus a Zoom call. So have everybody just join by phone.
2: So hopefully those are helpful. They really are. Thank you so much, Erica. And it makes so much sense because it's definitely a new environment. To me, first, I'm working remotely, so it definitely helps clarify the entire situation. Thank you so much. And I had one last question, if time permits. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. So something that I've also noticed from the remote working, it's that the imposter syndrome tends to kick a lot when there's so many people in a meeting and you want to contribute, but you don't know if it's the right time or not. So my question is, how can team members cope with the imposter syndrome that comes naturally from a virtual interaction?
0: I love this question as well. So imposter syndrome is something that we all experience at some point or all the time. There might be that little voice in the back of our minds that's always there. And I think imposter syndrome is really just an indication that you really care. That something that you're doing really matters to you. I think imposter syndrome has a lot of ways that it really—it's just our humanness showing up as well, our very real humanness. So I appreciate that you're bringing this up because I think a lot of people struggle with imposter syndrome and feel bad admitting that they have imposter syndrome because that imposter syndrome tells us that, oh, something must be wrong with us because we think something must be wrong with us. We don't deserve to be here. We don't have something good to contribute. So it kind of becomes this like little loop, if you will. So I think first and foremost Just again, normalizing that, of course, you have imposter syndrome because you care and this is important and you care about your team members and we all want to feel smart and look smart. So I think that is number one. Of course, we feel this way. Number two is we can just decide whether that imposter syndrome, that inner critic that we have, whether we can decide, um, is it? Are these telling us facts or are they telling us opinions? So that inner critic is going to kick in and we can just decide, well, that's the storyline. That's great. That's the I'm not good enough storyline. And then all of a sudden, it's not true. In the same way as we tend to interpret what our inner critic is telling us, it's amazing how often we just believe what our thoughts are telling us. We just buy into them hook, line, and sinker. And I'll tell you, the goal doesn't necessarily have to be to get rid of imposter syndrome. It really is about just saying, hey, yeah, you're there. That's great. I appreciate what you're trying to do for me, but you can kind of take a back seat. And the more that we can change that dialogue with ourselves to get outside of that inner critic to see that inner critic is separate from us and that it's trying to do something, whatever it's trying to do, we just don't have to believe it. And then we continue to do the things that really matter. And one thing that's really important as well is when we have anxiety and we avoid something that we're feeling anxious about, it's a learning paradigm. It teaches our brains that, of course, that thing that we thought was true is true. So the more that when you have anxiety and that imposter syndrome kicks in and you go ahead and do it anyway, whatever scares you and you do it anyway, what you're doing is you're teaching your brain that you're okay. And I know what I, my experience with you is I love your contributions. I think they're amazing. I always love when you speak up. I wish that everybody would speak up. I love hearing everyone's voices. And we all have a really amazing opportunity to contribute something that literally not a single other human being on this planet can and this is what's amazing each person that is on that call you all of us we have our own unique set of perspectives and experiences and the more that we can realize that that is something really amazing that we can offer and we can lean into that instead of uh, listening to the inner critic it really is profound it's a way for us to connect and you want to know what If you do say something stupid, I know I say stupid stuff all the time. I'm like, oh, wow, that was just, no, that did not work. That did not make sense. That's not a liability. We can just own that, that sometimes we're all going to say things that don't make sense or didn't really, weren't really relevant and that that's completely okay. And the more that we can do that and we can make peace with that, the less that these things feel like liabilities. So did that get to the heart of what you were asking?
2: Oh my goodness. Yes, Erica. Thank you so much. Like really what a treat to be able to just discuss these type of topics in such a natural and important way. So definitely thank you so much for everything, honestly.
0: Thank you so much and really appreciate you really appreciate everyone in this truly special, special place.
1: Well, Zach, thank you for your question in chat. I incorporated into one of my questions earlier. So thank you for being here and asking the question about scaling. And thank you for the team members here contributing questions. And Erica, again, thank you so much for your time with us today and all that you're doing with us at Allocations and all that you're going to do. I think we've all got big plans. This is just the beginning, so to speak. So hopefully we continue this journey together for quite a while. But thank you again for making the time today to have such a fun conversation. We appreciate you.
0: Thank you so much, Kendra. And thank you also, just you have been so incredible to work with, just the openness. And I think that it's just been a delight. So I appreciate you very much as well. And thank you for having me today.